All right, everybody. Welcome to the Onyx Report. Apologize. It looks like we're having a little bit of technical difficulty. Uh, my whole system shut down literally five minutes before the show began. So, um, you know, it took me a minute, uh, probably 10 minutes, because it took me a few minutes to get it going again. So uh, bear with me. Hopefully we are back in and things are running smoothly. Um, so I see we got some people. We are broadcasting today, of course, on uh, innerlightradio.com, as well as YouTube and Facebook as well, and Twitch, for that matter. Uh, so you can join from any of those uh, and support the show. Um, what's up to Ron, uh, Vladimir, T-Fitness? Hope everybody's good. What's up, Damon, Rashid, Joe Average Brothers? We got some folks in here, NJ Progressive, Malika. Uh, Moada, what's going on? I hope people are good. Um, Roguish to Buildmonger, want to shout out uh, most particularly T Fitness, appreciate that support. Want to shout out to people who definitely participated in the, um, the YouTube membership program. If you're interested in becoming a member of the Onyx Report, you can go there, click the join button just right next to the subscription button, and become one of the members of the show. A uh, quick shout out to some of my members. Um, we're a little over 30, so we're doing pretty well. I think about 36. Omni America, Damon, Seventh, Blackfoot, Shauna, Hill, uh, Scholar, uh, Officer Faulkner, Kalonjikala. Um, I apologize if I messed it up. Gold Professor, Cedric, um, let's see, Sherrod, uh, Vladimir, uh, Cameron, Harry, Ryan. Lady Miss Thing, Jay Jermaine, Book of Rhymes, BK Bourne, uh, Jason Invisible, um, uh, Johnny, Shop Talk Live, The Shatterpoint, I Care, Muwada, Roguish, BGS, uh, Smooth Groove, Introvert, uh, Peace is a Lie, Your Majesty, Malik, uh, and the Nameless Protag Protagonist, SP the Ghost. I want to shout out my members. Uh, thank you for taking the time to join. And remember, uh, after our show, we'll have an after show. Uh, that is available for everyone to see uh, as soon as I work out the kinks on that. But um, uh, for my uh, Diamond and Onyx members, you can participate in the chat as well as the uh, come up on StreamYard and talk to me directly. Uh, so shout out to that. Aquatech, you appreciate the cash app. So things are moving. We're trying to get it together. And as y'all can tell, uh, we've got a hot one tonight. A lot of people are definitely interested in black men all of a sudden. Uh, appreciate uh, Michael uh, Cavanis, uh, Mr. Blue Collar, for becoming a new member. Thanks for that. Um, so it's, it's you know there's a lot going on. Good to see you too, Moada. Um, we're trying to get things moving, and I just kind of want to make sure I'm covering all my bases. I want to thank everybody too for the birthday shoutouts. My birthday was last Saturday. Um, and yesterday I actually uh, went to L.A. to record on an upcoming documentary that'll be out next July. More info on that a little bit later. But things are definitely moving in a very good way. And uh, I want to, you know, just basically shout out uh, the people who made that happen, most particularly uh, my subscribers. Uh, so I hope, um, you know, all is well with you all. Uh, let me see. So today, uh, you know, we're obviously MLR. Appreciate that. Became a new member. Um, got that going. So y'all know how we do. We got a number of, of, of plates spinning here, trying to make sure I keep everything going smoothly. 
Uh, our topic today, as you can tell, is should black men bother to vote, black masculinism and the updated black male political agenda. All of a sudden, this agenda is becoming more and more important and people are starting to pay more attention than I've seen them pay uh, to black men in quite a while. Uh, a lot of that, I think, has to do with a bit of shaming, as it were, uh, because you can't keep using black male deaths to this degree and then not pay attention to black males. And it's an interesting point we've reached when you can't quite figure out whether or not the Democrats or the Republicans are worse uh, in regard to black men. That's an entirely uh, interesting and different situation. And of course, every four years, we hear the same rhetoric about keeping, you know, getting conservatives out of office. And I understand it. But at the same time, when we look at this from the vantage point of black men, it really kind of reveals a whole different political platform. And I say that because we don't often know how to address politics from the vantage point of black men. So that said, we're going to get into that in a little bit. Um, and we'll kind of uh, delve into how I see some of that. Uh, Quadwell, what's going on, brother? Um, see you in here. All right. We got 172 people in here. Please click the like button, share and subscribe. Definitely become a member. Um, I'm at the 10.5 thousand subscriber mark. I'd like to push that up uh, as high as possible. All right. Um, and just uh, so you know, becoming an Onyx level member uh, means that you will be, uh, you know, definitely get the shout outs, the question, Q&A uh, question priority. When we get to the Q&A portion of a show, uh, chat access to private member shows, direct conversation access and film reviews. Uh, the diamond level members get the shout outs, the question priority, and they get to chat in the private member sessions. The gold level members get shout outs and question priority. Uh, so you can do that and you can go over to Patreon if you're interested in the film review program. Remember, that's actually designed for fathers to use to use film to talk to their sons about manhood and the experiences of black men. Uh, so those reviews are geared to that. And we're going to be doing some upcoming ones that I think that are, are fairly important, um, especially as we delve into some of this mess that we're all seeing. Um, so let me see. Shout out to Black Uru Strikes, became a new member. All right. So as y'all know, I uh, appreciate that uh, 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 support Cash App, uh, as well as Rashid for the uh, Cash App right there. I'm sorry, Kashif, I appreciate the support. I'm moving way fast, and I'm a little worried if my system goes out. So if everything just goes black, y'all know what happened, because <laughs> I've never seen it do that, and all of a sudden, before the show, it just disappeared. All right, so BGS in the house, what's up? Had a chance to see BGS yesterday and his grandson. So it's always a good thing to see. Um, anyway, uh, y'all know I started this Sacred Black Masculine series. And basically all that means is when I'm about to cover the current events, I like to stop and acknowledge, you know, black men. Now, this is random. This is nothing. I'm not I'm going out there and looking for for acts of good. It really is a matter of things that cross me or if, if somebody sends me something that I think, uh, you know, warrants some shouting out. So it's 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 actually very organic. It's not something I've been going out to uh, to do. Dark Knight mentality. Thanks for becoming a member. Um, but I wanted to kind of, you know, just showcase a few things. Now, this is an older one. This actually comes from 2015. But I still thought the young brother deserved a shout out. Uh, this is eighth. Well, he was an eighth grader, Corey Terrell, uh, Texas Spelling Bee champion. Um, and I just wanted to shout him out. You know what I'm saying? Because um, I remember doing the, some of the Spelling Bees when I was a kid. And uh, I definitely remember how few black folk I saw 
uh, who who made it, particularly you know as the, the sessions advanced. So this was this is a little close to my heart because that used to be something I I, I I dug quite a bit. And shout out to him. He's 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 probably out of high school now in the college, but I hope he's doing well. Um, so um, just to kind of shout him out in that respect. Also, right, renowned author Walter Mosley to receive uh, National Book Foundation's Lifetime Achievement Award. Shout out to him. Right. Um, the honor is historic as it marks the first time in the nonprofit's 31 year history that a black man has received a Lifetime Achievement Medal. Mosley has penned over 60 books that span across an array of genres. Right. His first novel, uh, a mystery book titled Devil in a Blue Dress. I know y'all remember that film um, was released in 1990, became a bestseller and served as the inspiration for the 1995 film with Denzel and Don Cheadle. My personal favorite, though, is the work he did with Lawrence Fishburne on the film Always Outnumbered, Always Outgunned. I show that every year in my black male class. Powerful piece. So shout out to him. You can find more on the article on newsone.com, as you can see. Uh, but shout out to Walter Mosley for that. Xavier Brothers Group, appreciate the support. Mike the Polymath, appreciate that. Wealthy is a mind frame, appreciate the support. Uh, all right. So let's see, moving forward a bit. Now, this one is not necessarily a, a happy shout out, but it is an example, in my opinion, of the sacred black masculine, which is, by the way, again, just an acknowledgement of black men who have made a hell of a contribution. Most of the time it's good, but sometimes it's recognizing a loss. And there are a couple of losses I'm gonna recognize tonight, and it doesn't mean anything that I haven't included them here, um, but it is to say this one is a little special for me because uh, Dr. Robert Staples, sociologist, uh, you know, if you haven't checked out Green Gorilla's channel, go look at him on YouTube. He gave a very important uh, and stirring kind of uh, acknowledgement of Staples' work, particularly one of his main pieces. And in the late 70s, Staples was an excellent example of what I would call an academic Black masculinist. He asked very critical questions about Black feminism that few others um, were, were not asking, right? So that said, um, I think it's important. He challenged some of the popular kind of... Um, perceptions going on at the time. He raised questions about the um, the authenticity of some of the Black feminist works coming out, most particularly in the Saki Shange's uh, For Colored Girls, uh, as well as Michelle Wallace's um, piece, uh, Black Macho, right? Foundational pieces in Black feminism. Robert Staples was astute enough at the time to raise some critical questions about how these pieces impacted Black men, while at the same time, um, being very generous about, you know, the need for, for at that point, uh, early black feminist voices. But apparently, and I shout out to Gigi for this, I did not know he had passed this year, February 7th of 2020. Uh, he had passed away in Australia at the age of 79 years old. Right. So towering legacy as a sociologist. Uh, if you're not familiar, look him up, definitely check out a number of his pieces a uh, profound scholar and 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 clearly a, a heavy loss uh, to those of us who are interested in how black men are studied, perceived, and remembered. So look into Dr. Dr. Robert Staples um, and, and to him, I'll simply say, thank you for your service. Peace to you, sir. Rest in power, right? Um, now, skipping ahead to my current events, uh, y'all know how I like to do. Uh, so I'm going to stretch my legs tonight because there's a few things to go over, right? Uh, first up, 
missing boy found wandering St. Louis streets with protective stray pit bull by his side. The toddler, Kamarian Taylor, uh, kept saying puppy after being reunited with his father. Young boy was reunited after um, in St. Louis last week after a neighbor spotted the toddler wandering outside with a large pit bull by his side. Apparently the pit bull was not the family. So imagine this toddler walking the street for hours and this pit bull was actually guarding him as he walked around. And so by the time one of the neighbors found him and went door to door looking for his family, um, this pit bull protected him the entire way. Right. So uh, one of those kind of moments that uh, could have gone a whole different direction, but nevertheless, uh, shout out to him. Um, it actually took uh, social media before the father recognized his son on there and could find him. Uh, and apparently the boy and the dog uh, developed a very tight relationship. So um, as I said, that could have gone a whole different direction. And I just wanted to kind of acknowledge uh, that interesting kind of story that we've never quite seen before happen like that, at least not that I've seen, right? Next up, three brothers are accused of killing a black teenager in Fort Worth suburb of, of what's called White Settlement. That's actually the name of the town, White Settlement. If that doesn't tell you something, I don't know what the hell will. Police arrested 17-year-old Kyle, 18-year-old Ty, Ty, and 23-year-old Sean Garrison for the murder of Western Hills High School senior Xavier Alesco. Lesko was shot outside a home on Tumbleweed Trail last week. Friends said he had gone to the front to meet someone and then they had heard gunshots. Police believe robbery was the motive. They said Alesko uh, and Sean Garrison were acquaintances and had arranged to meet on the day of the shooting. The brothers showed up with the intention of robbing Alesko and ended up shooting him during the encounter. The Garrison brothers are each being held on $200,000 bond. They'll be charged with capital murder. You can find that article in foxfornews.com, or at least that's the article I pulled up. Uh, so definitely check into that if you're interested. But uh, nonetheless, we're seeing more and more how black men are being treated, uh, regardless of what they want to claim the motivation is. Right? Uh, Dark Knight says, yes, that's west of Fort Worth. They tried to have the name changed a few years ago. Um, another brother, a nameless protagonist said, that's 20 minutes from me. Exactly. All right. Okay. Next one up. This is in Lansing, Michigan. He cheated, so she set his mom's house on fire. I hope your mom likes being burned alive. This is uh, uh, you can this you can find this on a website called crimewithkissy.com. A woman angry at her boyfriend texted him, "I hope your mom likes being burned alive." Before allegedly setting a house on fire and killing the man's mother and two of his nephews, all because she suspected that he was cheating on her. Uh, on the night of September 3rd, Abiana Williams, 21 years old, altered her life destiny when she sent a threatening text message to her boyfriend. According to the state court, um, Abiana texted him a threatening message to let him know that she was about to commit a murder um, in order to punish him for cheating. And she says uh, exactly what I read earlier upon their arrival. Um, firefighters found a small one-story home engulfed in flames with fire spewing out of the front and side windows. Inside, they found the body of three deceased victims, 53-year-old woman and two little boys. Right? Abiana denied starting a fire and being at 1450 Elizabeth Street on the night of the fire. However, a friend of hers told police that he dropped her near that address that night shortly before 1130. The friend said that before getting out of the car, she told someone on the phone, I hope your mama likes being burned alive. 
This is what we're dealing with, right? This level of, of, of dysfunction, particularly over this kind of, and this is something that we got to talk about. I mean, I, I may do a show on it, but this, even years ago, I would show clips in my classes of men being abused by women. And one of the things that would constantly come up is this issue of, well, you know, he cheated and cheating somehow suggesting that it merited whatever response a woman chose to give. Uh, now, obviously, nobody's going to outwardly condone such murder. But the idea is simply being that violence initiated by women over issues of infidelity, not necessarily that they occurred over the possibility of infidelity is considered grounds for a violent response. Now, obviously, this is a whole nother level, but I think even just the subculture or the, or the kind of background cultural idea that men are men warrant physical response, right, when they may have committed an act. And I've seen these kind of things take place in the news and I've reported on them over just the possibility. And that and that whole idea that men should somehow be accountable uh, simply because of that is preposterous. And we need to be able to break that down uh, because this is where it's escalated to. Right. 258 people in the building. Please like, share and subscribe. Become members of the channel. Click the join button right next to the subscription and join in. Next up, Niles Fitch plays Disney's first live action Black Prince. Now, I'm not going to go into any kind of depth here. I will say, though, as a single father, one of the things that I remember happening years ago when my son was very young was the uh, the film Princess and the Frog that came out and we saw how many black girls were excited about that. And I remember my son who wasn't particularly into Disney films, but I remember him asking me, were there any black princes? Now, you, you know, a couple of years ago, we know that the Black Panther films came out. So technically speaking, uh, Chadwick Boseman's T'Challa was Disney's first black prince, as far as we know. Uh, if anybody else has any more uh, detailed information, maybe something obscure we don't know about, please let me know. Nevertheless, Disney never never really foregrounded him as their first black prince. It's just kind of something we assume because they owned, you know, the the, the you know the whole series. But um, this is actually the first uh, kind of announced one. And what it, whether it means anything or not, eh, I'm indifferent to. What I find interesting is that it took 83 years to happen. And so for fathers, uh, for little boys, you know, if, if little boys are curious about that thing, it, it's it's something to be said that it took this long for black boys to be represented, even in Princess and the Frog. Her love interest wasn't black at all. So what does that say about black men in this context of popular media? Well, one of the questions raised in my comment sections when I did post this was whether or not the character would at least be heterosexual. And it wasn't even raised in any kind of a, a, a you know, an unnecessarily antagonistic way. It was actually a genuine question because it seems that black men it have to be represented in all kinds of multi multi dynamic sexual representations in order to be to be considered viable or authentically black and male. It, it, but you know, for other groups, they can actually uh, represent themselves in a lot of different kind of ways. So, just a quick acknowledgement that here uh, Disney is releasing their first black male prince, and depending on the story, this may be something you might want your little uh, boys to engage on one level or another. That is entirely up to you. Just thought it important enough to mention. So next up, they were angry at me, it seems. 12-year-old black boy who started his second year of college, right? This is one Caleb Anderson. Uh, he could sign 250 words at nine months old. We're talking very young black genius. 
um, right? Uh, by 15 months old, he could already name all of the countries on the globe. At age two, he could read the U.S. Constitution, and today he speaks three languages other than English, uh, Spanish, French, and Mandarin. Go ahead, man. Uh, those early accomplishments helped to land the 12-year-old boy from Marietta, Georgia, where he is today, starting his second year at Chattahoochee Technical College, also in Marietta. Anderson qualified for the High IQ Society of Mensa at age three and joined at age five, becoming the youngest black boy to have ever done so. Because of his age, Caleb's father chaperones him on campus, but the experience hasn't come without some hiccups. Kobe says while on campus, a white female faculty member attempted to kick him off campus, assuming he didn't belong, right? It was because there had been some high school or middle-aged kids on campus earlier that year that were involved in some type of drug activity, right? So this woman assumed that my then 11-year-old son was a drug dealer, right? I think there's a stereotype of young black males, whether it's sports or music, they wouldn't have a problem with it. But when it's intellect, people tend to question it. Right? You can find this article on Atlanta Black Star, um, but it deals with a 12-year-old black boy uh, who's in college, but uh, being you know harshly treated over assumptions of being a drug dealer. So this is the kind of thing that I, I'm calling out. And the reason I'm pointing these kinds of things out is that I really want people to understand how black men are seen and how we're treated systemically speaking. And I'm doing this because even black men ourselves will individualize these experiences and will treat them, some people, some, will treat them as just random phenomena that happens sometimes. But when you start to see it and then look historically going back generations, you really start to understand if you don't already that none of this is accidental and, and the problematic aspect of this needs to start being called out more regularly and particularly by black men themselves. Right. Exactly. Dark Knight mentality. A drug dealer walking around with his father on a college campus. Right. Uh, Green Gorilla in the building. What's up, man? Hope you're good. All right. Um, so look out for that. This is a sad one for those who aren't familiar. Um, this one has to do with um, uh, two individuals, a mother and her boyfriend arrested and charged for their role in the death of uh, her two year old daughter. Apparently, this is back in August, weeks after two-year-old Malaya Bass was found dead in Bras Bayou. I may have mispronounced that, Braze Bayou. Police have arrested and, ch and charged her mother and her mother's boyfriend. Malaya was initially at the center of an Amber Alert after her mother said she left the toddler alone on the playground outside of the apartment for a couple of minutes while she cooked breakfast the morning of August 22nd. Tuesday, Houston police announced they arrested Sahara Irvin, 20, and Travion Thompson, 21, for their alleged roles in the girl's death. They are charged with injury to a child and tampering with evidence, namely Malaya's body. According to the Houston police, overnight, a judge set bond for the mother and her boyfriend. Thompson's bonds total $150,000 and Irvin's $175,000. This article, as you can see, can be found on abc13.com. Look into that more and let's try and follow along. Um, and hope that they actually had nothing to do with it. But, you know, these days you really can't tell. So I thought it important that we at least put that on our radar. Right. Uh, next one up, Black men, the minority at HBCUs. I will give you a second to process that. The minority at HBCUs. And yes, it is questionable as to whether or not uh, that number is even smaller when you factor in 
the question of whether or not the black men are ADOS for that matter, right? Nevertheless, uh, this is an interesting piece um, that has to do with the numbers, apparently in, ter in terms of HBCUs, the total, uh, I believe this year is 223,163 students. Out of that, 81,055 were male, 142,108 were female. This is something that is happening nationally and is not just happening at HBCUs. Even at my, in my campus at Fresno State, there's about 637 black students uh, out of that, 347 are female, 290 are male. Uh, so we are seeing a dramatic drop or, or at least lower representation of black men on a very consistent national basis. And one of the issues has to do with K through 12 education. It's one of the major issues, you know, in terms of not only their ability to qualify and compete to get into college campuses, but also in terms of whether or not uh, they are acculturated to an academic environment. Many of our boys, as we've talked about before, and many of us, many of the men in my comment sections, many of the men listening to my show, were routed into special ed at very young ages, things of that na nature, non-college track courses. Uh, and much of the time, it was often based on a teacher's interpretation of behavior and not necessarily on academic ability. Nevertheless, there are a variety of levels where black males find themselves unwelcome in academic environments, even while going through public school or K through 12 in general. And from there, end up finding themselves out of the academic pool altogether. So this is much bigger than what happens on college campuses. It also includes what goes on in general. Um, you know, so acknowledging that, uh, keep that in mind. Um, now, this is something uh, Angry Man Valdez, uh, Juan Valdez, has already dealt with. I'm not going to play the video clip, uh, but I think it is something you should check out. And we're going to actually kind of come back to the topic when we deal with the black male political agenda. But here you see bad boy rapper Black Rob. Uh, he basically says, I'm broke because of child support. He says, I need help. And if you actually watch the video, it's actually kind of sad when you see the facial expression. The man looks completely exhausted. He looks completely spent. Uh, and there are a lot of issues here that need to be teased out in regard to that. But Black Rob assigned to Diddy's Bad Boy Records for nearly a decade. He's best known for the hit song, Whoa. Um, but according to him, things aren't going well. He says, I'm still under pressure. It might not seem like it, but I'm still under pressure. I need help. He said, um, I get money, but the child support is slaying me. I can't even live my life. I'm supposed to be popping but I'm not. Black Rob is now 52 years old and the father of four children. Um, and he talked about a variety of setbacks in regard to that. Uh, five years ago, he suffered a mild stroke, likely due to high blood pressure. Wonder what causes that. Um, but nevertheless, um, we will be talking about the impact of child support. One of the things I've noticed that tends to happen to celebrities is, uh, especially when you're talking about rappers, right? Um, I've known quite a few. I've invited quite a few to my campus and I tended to invite the classic artists who are a little bit older. So they had stories for me going back sometime, sometimes a couple decades. And one of the things I found interesting listening to those stories is how they would talk about what people assume being a celebrity is like versus what actually happens. For many of them, they get their money in pockets. You know, some of them may only get paid a couple of times a year. So often what you'll see is they'll partner with people who have like a regular paycheck, uh, maybe marry a teacher or something of that nature. Um, but then, you know, when they get pockets of money, they come like that. Now, child support is often determined based on those moments 
when that money is is large, but there's no guarantee another check is coming. And if the monthly amount is set, that can also be a problem. And it can be even more difficult to try and get that reevaluated when your income drops. And you don't have to be a celebrity to go through that. I hear from brothers all over the country who may have been employed well and have difficulty getting in front of a judge to have their situations reevaluated and nevertheless end up suffering a very difficult fate in regard to that. So, um, you know, I, I've never heard of celebrities actually, you know, being uh, in such a position over, you know, something like four children, but it's definitely happening. And we got to keep in mind, this is also happening during COVID uh, where a lot of these artists and athletes can't play, uh, can't go on the road. That goes for comedians and singers, you name it. Um, you know, talk to a good friend of mine who's a celebrity. I won't say his name, uh, but he's going through his own kind of struggles, you know. And so um, sometimes if you're just employed, you'd be surprised. You may be doing better than your favorite celebrity uh, in the midst of all this, believe it or not. You know what I mean? Believe it or not. But nevertheless, um, that is a story going on with Black Rob. I implore you to check the video out just so you can actually experience um, or see uh, the kind of stress he's talking about. Um, and you, you definitely get the impression that he's telling the truth. All right. Um, here we go. Uh, those of you who are Spike Lee fans are no doubt familiar with one Thomas Jefferson Bird. Uh, he's been in a number of different films. He was apparently murdered uh, not long ago after Thomas Jefferson Bird was fatally shot in Georgia Saturday morning, according to Atlanta police. Officers responded to the southwest of Atlanta for an injured person's call. When the officers arrived, Bird was found unresponsive. He was 70 years old, pronounced dead at the scene from multiple gunshot wounds to the back. Right. His death and circumstances around it are under investigation. If you've seen any kind of update since this, feel free to send it to me. Um, but Spike Lee announced it uh, uh, Sunday, I believe, uh, that he'd been murdered the night before. Bird was was starred, excuse me, in several of Lee's movies. Um, you know, again, if you've watched very much of Spike Lee, you'd see him. He's been in Clockers, Chirac, Sweet Blood of Jesus, Red Hook Summer, Bamboozled, He Got Game, Get on the Bus, Girl Six, Clockers, all of that. Uh, even set it off. I don't think anybody can ever forget Luther. Uh, but anyway, shout out to uh, Thomas Jefferson Bird. I hope we find out the details soon, but, uh, you know, peace to his family. Uh, and I've always appreciated his work. So I was sad to hear that. Um, okay. Going ahead here. Johnny Nass, a singer of, I can see clearly now dead at 80 years old, according to his son. Uh, he is the star of the 1972 hit. I can see clearly now, as I said, he was 80 years old. I haven't seen anything reported as to why, but uh, wanted to shout him out as well. Acknowledgement to him. Um, didn't know much about him, but I do, of course, remember the song. And we have all kinds of people going down this year, especially. So give pe people their flowers while they're alive. People that mean the most to you. Uh, and when they pass, um, if they're worthy, extend the respect that they deserve. OK. <sighs> Y'all already know that I review, you know, films and television, television shows on a regular. Uh, I sacrifice my peace of mind in some instances to do that. <laughs> um, I'm going to be inviting uh, BGS and Green Gorilla probably at the end of the season. There's only a couple episodes left of Lovecraft Country. I'm going to invite both brothers up and we're going to do a round table 
uh, and talk about the actual series itself. But this looks like another one. Um, it's called The Good Lord Bird. Apparently, it's a fictional account of abolitionist John Brown, where he travels with a former slave who wears a dress uh, based on a 2013 novel. Um, and it is starring Ethan Hawke. Yeah. Good Lord Bird. Right. Seems to be an imperative that black men be seen as often as possible um, to be um, anything but in a strong position, strong role, strong demonstration of masculinity. Seems to be quite the press to make sure that, um, you know, that doesn't happen. Uh, shout out to Underdog Glory. Appreciate the support. Um, let's see. Shout out to Great Britain. Uh, appreciate that. Um, have some contributors here. I want to just acknowledge. Uh, I think I missed one, so I apologize if I missed you. It is definitely not intentional, um, but uh, appreciate that. So, exactly, Commander Gore. No John Henrys, and there's plenty of examples of historical black men that could be represented. But we always kind of find ourselves in this position of examining how black men are represented, right? And it's usually uh, fairly problematic. Right. And even when you have a good piece that comes out like um, Nate, Nate Parker's Birth of a Nation, it's completely marred uh, by, uh, you know, uh, particularly feminist reviews. So uh, definitely something to um, pay attention to my show on, because when I do watch it, I will give you updates about it. Um, and I wouldn't suggest that you have to subject subject yourself to it either way. Um, it is out there, and I just wanted you to know, right? Um, Spook Freeman. Apparently, it is not a woman. No. 340 in the building. Please like, share, and subscribe, and support the show if you will. Um, all right, as we are keeping it moving out here. This is an interesting one. Samuel Jackson has a documentary up, and this documentary uh, is called Enslaved. Um, he's not in all aspects of it. Most most of it is him, uh, you know, being, he's being, you know, installed in West Africa, uh, and he's kind of, you know, tracing his family lineage, and at the same time, uh, they're actually looking for uh, the remnants of uh, slave ships in, in, uh, in the Caribbean as well as uh, not, not far away from Europe. So there's been some interesting explorations there that they kind of show going underwater and actually looking uh, for the remnants of ships. Uh, Jay Single, appreciate that support. Um, so that part of it is interesting. The two things that, that I, I point out with this, though, is one, uh, in the series, the, the woman you can see in the middle, whose name I didn't write down here, I had it on another document, and when my computer crashed, it eliminated it, so I apologize. Uh, but while in the Elmina port in Ghana, where they were looking, she was kind of instructing him on the history there. She was walking him through. Uh, she's a scholar, but I'm not, I don't have her name and I don't have her credentials in front of me. Uh, I did, but I, I hate not being exact. But anyway, she starts to kind of talk about, you know, Elmina in regard to how women were sexually abused. Uh, and that is important. Nobody's, nobody's suggesting that it isn't. But one of the things I noticed in it is when she got done, 
um, Samuel Jackson actually added to her assessment of it, her kind of walkthrough. And he suggested that it wasn't just women who were sexually violated at Almina, it was also boys. Now he didn't talk about men, but I did at least tip my hat to him for being willing to bring that up because most people don't. Well, the interesting thing that happened after that is she said, yes, you're right. But it was it was interesting because had he not said that, had he not intervened in that way, she would have skipped over it. She wasn't really about to bring that up at all. And the reason I say that is, one, my first thought was, I wonder how many times she's given that talk and not included males in any capacity, boys or men. But then I began to reflect on my own education. I said, well, you know, she's really not that different. I mean, from K through 12 to undergrad to the master's to the doctorate, I never had a professor talk about the sexual violation of black boys or men. I asked in one class during my doctorate and my professor asked me, why would you even ask about that? Right. But there's been there was no talk. Now, that's not to say there wasn't research, but I never ran across it as a student and I was never introduced to any of that in class. Whenever we talked about sexual victimization, particularly during slavery, it was strictly the um, environment for women and girls. And, and so I, I really I kind of appreciated Samuel Jackson doing that. Um, but it's sad to say in 2020, this is still uh, considered a, a rare occurrence, uh, historically speaking. And it was far from that. And it was actually quite frequent. As a matter of fact, black men are generally regarded amongst black masculinist scholars, uh, as, as far as slavery is concerned, to be the group violated by both white men and white women. Right? It wasn't limited to one gender overwhelmingly. They were violated by both. And in terms of white women, they were vi violated using the threat of proxy violence, where she didn't have to be physically imp imposing. She simply had to threaten, you know, to lie and suggest that he raped her uh, to get his kind of obedience. The other reason I brought this piece up is it highlighted to me how many white scholars are generally regarded as slavery experts and which types of documentaries uh, will even bother to focus on black researchers, historians, uh, antebellum historians most especially. Uh, I find it rare that these document documentaries prioritize black researchers. So patronize it uh, at your whim. It is on epics, it's called Enslaved. Um, but just a couple of observations I noticed regarding race and gender when it comes to how we are remembered, okay? Next up, you know, I like to keep you abreast of these kind of situations as they cross my desk, right? Two teachers charged after having a threesome with a 16-year-old student. And yes, the student was male. You can find this particular piece on trendings.net. Jury charges two female high school teachers for having a threesome with a 16-year-old boy. Jeff Jefferson Paris District Attorney's Office charged Rachel Respes, 24, and Shelley Dufresne, 32 for having group sex with the boy. Now, you know, before I hear what I usually hear where people celebrate this coming of age moment, um, I really implore you to go back and check Dr. Tommy Curry's piece, She Touched Me. Also look at the video interview. Um, I think that that one was, there was an interview and I actually read through portions of the paper. This is actually far more frequent than people think. And although in some instances, you know, people celebrate it and hopefully the young man is not jarred by any of it, in some instances they are, all right, particularly when you start to talk about boys who are violated at younger and younger ages, 12, 9, 6, by adult women from anywhere from 18 to in their 40s and 50s. And yet 
No conversation about that. So I keep showing you these occurrences not to, you know, titillate you, not to make you think that this is somehow, you know, something to laugh at, but actually to point out over and over again how differently these kind of violations are perceived. Flip the story, right? Two teachers charged with having a threesome with a 16-year-old girl's girl, right? One teacher, 24, the other teacher, 35, men, having a threesome with a 16-year-old girl that uh, is a student in their classes. Resonate the same way? Right. So again, there's a very particular history to how men and women are addressed. And you'll notice in the title, you have not seen the word rape used. Right. So interesting kind of acknowledgement here. And no, they are not always white. I just hit them. I report them randomly as they hit my desk, but they are not. This does happen in the black community. Um, all right. Atlanta Black Star. Check this one out. Skeletal remains found in Mexico reveal stories of African enslavement going back 500 years in Latin America. Three skeletons found by scientists in a mass grave in 19, 1992 in Mexico City chronicle the horrific life journey of some of the first Africans who were transported to Latin America some 500 years ago. The bones display uh, uh, evidence of fractures, gunshot wounds, and the men's introduction of infectious diseases during their enslavement in Central America, uh, Central Mexico. Excuse me. The study, published April 30th in the scientific journal Current Biology, paints a picture of the lives of how many Africans during the early Spanish colonization um, and how their presence may have shaped disease dynamics in the New World. The study authors, uh, the study authors said in their joint statement, right. Having Africans in central Mexico so early during the colonial period tells us a lot about the dynamics of that time, said author Rodrigo uh, Barquera, um, a graduate student at Germ Germany's Max Planck Institute for the Science of Human History. And since they were found in the mass burial site, these individuals likely died in one of the first epidemics of epidemic events in Mexico City. And there are a number of these. We've seen mass graves found in everywhere from Brazil to Texas. I mean, so they're, you know, they're kind of always tripping up on these. And I will give credit to Samuel Jackson's uh, documentary, Enslaved. They do talk about finding mass graves as well. Uh, I believe in Europe, if I'm not mistaken. But the legacy uh, of these uh, incidences are quite common. All right. All right. Moving forward. His flesh was all on the ground. Family of innocent black man mauled to death by police dog over a false burglary charge. Family of a black man mauled to death by police in 2018 was successfully subpoenaed. They successfully subpoenaed the body cam footage of the incident, according to new filings in an ongoing lawsuit. Montgomery Police Department had previously refused to confirm that footage of the incident existed. Joseph Lee Petaway, 51 years old, was at a house owned by his 87-year-old mother in Montgomery, Alabama on July 8, 2018. He had been caring for her, helping her fix up the home, and had a key and permission to sleep there. Someone called 911 overnight that Sunday and reported that the vacant home was being burglarized, although it was really Petaway entering his mother's house. Police canine handler Nicholas Barbara and his dog, Nico, arrived on the scene to search the premises. Nico ran inside and found Petaway, lunged at him, and clamped down on his body. 
Barber stood by and failed to remove the dog from Petaway for almost two minutes, according to court documents. During that time, Nico tore an artery in Petaway's groin. He ultimately bled out and died. His flesh was all on the ground that morning. His uh, Petaway's sister, Yvonne, suggested um, and said to, to Montgomery advertiser, uh, despite Mr. Petaway's obvious and profuse bleeding and his apparently going into shock, no policeman uh, examines or evaluates Petaway's wound and no policeman administered any kind of, mo of the most basic essential and obvious, um, uh, essential, obvious and immediately required care to stem or reduce his bleeding. I apologize. That was worded weird. Um, his flesh was all on the ground and it said, um, he eventually was removed from the home by officers who laid him down on the pavement and waited for EMS to arrive. The officers allegedly stood by joking and taking pictures of, of Mr. Petaway as he bled out. There had been no indication that he was armed or attempted to flee. Uh, his mother, Lizzie May, also spoke about her son's brutal de death. She said they stood up there and let the dog kill him. They need to pay for what they did. If someone had killed the dog, they, they'd have made them pay for it. They stand out there and hold a conversation after letting the dog chew him like a piece of meat, watching him bleed to death. The family is now fighting the confidential designation of the footage and wants it to be released to the public. So here you have a black man that is being treated um, worse than a dog. Right. So this is what we're talking about. This is what we're dealing with. Uh, so hopefully the family will be able to um, get the footage released and uh, hopefully be able to generate some support for their push. OK. Hmm. Now. That takes a lot out of me. Really, it does. Those kind of stories definitely take a lot out of me, but. Um, hopefully there'll be some kind of justice. I just kind of want to get the word out about some of these occurrences as they take place. So recently I was alerted to uh, Roland Martin's show. I guess he had a recent show where he implored uh, people, I want to say over Twitter, to uh, most particularly uh, Biden and Harris to take seriously the issues that black men have not only with their campaign, but in general. And he suggested, and I'm, this is my phrasing, that some of it has been very patronizing, uh, symbol over substance, you know, and whatnot. But the interesting thing about it was he himself was uh, kind of attacked on his own Twitter post by a number of black women who argued that um, his suggestion that there be focus directed particularly to black men was a problem. And it, it was somehow representative of some type of privilege. Uh, somehow was an attack at black women. And so in that, I was surprised that, you know, that was Roland making those kind of statements, but I appreciated that he did. And there was a dis discussion going on really like the first half hour of the show about the need and the importance of it. And he even chastised one of Biden's uh, kind of representatives for referring to black men strictly in the context of men of color, rather than dealing with that, that, you know, dealing with black men as black men, separating the issues out. So I appreciated that. But it was interesting to kind of see the tweets. And you can go to his, his Twitter account and check that out yourself. Um, I don't believe it's been taken down as far as I know. Um, but nevertheless, it prompted and highlighted to me the ongoing importance, right, of the black male political agenda. 
And this is something we've been working on for really, I want to say the last couple of months. Uh, it has been a list that I have compiled that mostly comes from you all, right? Suggestions that brothers are sending me via email um, and via Facebook Messenger about things that need to be considered as far as black males interest. Now, this, uh, this isn't to suggest that all black men will like you, these. It isn't su to suggest that they won't. It's simply to suggest that at the end of the day, there are very particular needs, issues, and concerns that black men have that aren't necessarily represented um, by a generic black agenda. So that said, um, I'm gonna have to make a little bit of an adjustment here because like I said, uh, the PowerPoint I was developing, the whole computer crashed. So bear with me here. Um, this was something that I had some images up that I was gonna go through, but by the time I reopened the computer, that portion was gone. Uh, Isa, if I pronounce that properly, thank you for becoming a member uh, the Honest Report show. So thank you for that. All right. So anyway, uh, what I wanted to talk about was not only where exactly the black male political agenda is at this point. Uh, and I think uh, some of you will be quite interested to see uh, how that list is developed and where it is now. But I wanted to spend a few moments actually talking about the concepts ideological concepts, you know, the, the various um, uh, ideas that undergird my approach to the black male political agenda, right? Um, and so I kind of wanted to list some of that out for you. Um, and I'm a visual person, so I do apologize for the lack of graphics here, but it is nonetheless um, important. So you understand where I'm coming from, right? Um, what I will see if I can at least do is get the Word document up. And I do this kind of thing. So some of you who are interested in kind of looking at it and coming back to it later, uh, even if you see some URLs that you're interested in that you want to visit yourself, you might screenshot this on your phone, on your computer, and you can go ahead and do that. Um, but uh, I will pull this up so you can at least see what I am looking at, right? So this deals with, let's see if I can enlarge it a bit. All right. So this deals with the basic concepts that undergird it. Now, I'm, I'm approaching these concepts um, chronologically as they were developed. I'm not approaching them in terms of order of importance because each one contributes something important to the dialogue, at least in my mind. Right. Uh, so it, the first one up, as you can see, is Jim Sedanius's work, Social Dominance Theory, uh, and more, more particularly the subordinate male target hypothesis. If you're not familiar, definitely look that up. It has become a staple in black male studies, um, really kind of reintroduced to another generation by Dr. Tommy J. Curry, uh, but deals very specifically with the nature of oppression, particularly as it relates uh, to black men. That is how we interpret it. Um, so just to kind of give you a synopsis of what it is, the very popular double jeopardy hypothesis argues that women of color suffer from double handicap and are discriminated against on the basis of their gender and their ethnicity. However, this popular thesis is fundamentally flawed. In its place, we substitute the subordinate male target hypothesis, SMTH. SMTH argues that while women from both dominant and subordinate arbitrary groups, i.e. different races, and it doesn't necessarily have to be race, but of course, in the context we're dealing with it, we are talking about race, um, 
uh, let me see. Arbitrary groups are discriminated against on the basis of gender. Women from subordinate arbitrary set groups are generally not directly discriminated against on their basis of their arbitrary group membership, i.e. the basis of race. Rather, arbitrary set discrimination or racial discrimination here is primarily directed against males from subordinate arbitrary sets. More broadly, social dominance theory suggests that arbitrary set discrimination should be regarded as a form of intergroup conflict and a largely male-on-male -male project. Such conflict is primarily executed by males and primarily targeted against what's referred to as outgroup males. In this instance, we're talking about black men, black men being outgroup males. And you can carry the same critique over to Native Americans. You can carry it over, you know, you, you carry it over to a variety of groups um, in terms of the concept of the outgroup male. But nonetheless, such conflicts is primary, conflict is primarily executed by males and primarily targeted against outgroup males rather than outgroup females. So one example out of a number would be police homicide. Right. And I've reported on this regularly. Y'all know I put up charts. I've shown uh, every year, really, I've tried to keep up to date with that. So we know that there are roughly eight to 12 black women killed per year by police, uh, according to the Atlanta, uh, excuse me, the UCLA report that I posted on a couple months ago when I did a short show kind of showing you uh, the, the number of deaths uh, on a chart. Uh, I'll see if I can remember to put that in the description so you can check that video out yourself. Um, when you're looking at black LGBT population, which UCLA kind of framed as about 4%, um, there are a very low, low number uh, that were targeted and killed because of that from police. It mainly had to do with overwhelmingly heterosexual black males, two to 300 per year. And that's being conservative. That has to do with what's reported. And of course, it doesn't include vigilante um, you know, uh, behavior. It's particularly directed at police. And again, it's subject to interpretation based on how it's filed. But the point here being, at the end of the day, uh, what uh, Sedanius's work with social dominance theory and the subordinate male target hypothesis kind of frames is that oppression uh, is generally framed as a male-on-male -male endeavor. And when you look at the empirical data about the most direct uh, forms of oppression, one of the things you most consistently see is that it's initiated by males from the from one group and inflicted on males from another, right? And that is not to suggest that women and girls don't experience abuse or oppression, but it is to suggest that the overwhelming amount of it uh, is directed at men. And this is why BLM a number of years ago, uh, not the movement but the particular organization came under fire, particularly by black men, is because even though we were open to, you know, mobilizing the black community over the deaths of black men, uh, when you have this organization that is clearly suggesting that uh, black males can't have any leadership, uh, you know, standing in their organization and the focus. And I put this in a blog. I cited it from one of the founders of the group. The organization is primarily for women. This was stated uh, by one of the three founders of the group. You know, it becomes very clear that black male deaths are being used for a purpose that does not generate empathy or policy change for black males. That said, it has forced many to actually begin to reevaluate um, how we are used, described and focused upon even in our own community in regard to political activism and mobilization. So that said, uh, Jim Sedanius's work has been incredibly useful in framing what we um, you know, know to be happening. Um, the next concept that has importance here 
uh, in terms of the black male political agenda and my work in general is, of course, the work of Tommy J. Curry and his landmark text, The Man Not. If you have not picked it up, if you've not read it, I highly suggest you do so as soon as possible. Excellent piece that pro provides a new theoretical framework for understanding black men, uh, particularly um, uh, in, his, in history and today overall. Right? And his work it's not just limited to the book, but the very concept of the man not itself, you know, really highlighting the period in American history where we were not considered men. We were considered, you know, the black community in general was considered cattle in a way. I mean, we had we were male and female, but we were not men and women. Such concepts, um, you know, came with policy. You know, you could own property, you could travel, you could vote, you could be a citizen. But we were not regarded as human and thus not regarded as men and women. Uh, and so he goes into great depth to kind of explain what that concept of the man not refers to. But also what I think Curry does, which is important for us, is he shows us the importance of uh, intellectual historicism. And by that, uh, he traces the origin and the historicity of ideas, particularly how, particularly ideas that impact the black community, although his work spans outside of that into a number of different areas, but it's still important, uh, right? So that's kind of one of the things he brings to the table as well as an intellectual historian. He's, he charts the origins of some of these ideas, uh, be they racist ideas, be they historical occurrences. Um, also the push for empiricism, right? Um, his, and this is implicit in all of his work. I mean, the man's written like, I don't know how many papers this year alone, but in that, one of the things his focus has been on is the importance of empiricism, which has become, in my assessment, one of the most important dynamics of black male studies, as well as black masculinism, to use empirical data to make arguments, as opposed to just feelings, anecdotes, narratives, you know, um, which has become very popular in terms of how black men are described, but actually using data, using cited and reference uh, oriented documents to actually frame the experiences of black men and using that over opinion and mood and so on and so forth. These are important developments. Lastly, and not limited, and there's probably more I could point out, but I'm just giving you, you know, the bullet points of what undergirds this black male political agenda, conceptually speaking. The last point is the subculture of violence theory, right? The subculture of violence theory is something that he presented on, on my show um, I want to say maybe a month ago, did a paper at um, uh, University of Edinburgh where he talked about uh, this whole notion of the subculture of violence theory and what he's, he's referring to is the racist scholarship that produced, you know, this kind of animalistic, violent idea about black men with no type of backing, no type of data, no type of empirical references. And yet that became the, you know, the dominant academic approach to describing and analyzing black men. And from there, he talks about and shows you, illustrates how black feminists picked up on the idea and used it without qualifying the information, without any kind of data, without any kind of reference. And he names names and shows that. So if you're interested, look up to Dr. Tommy J. Curry at the University of Edinburgh, Scotland, and look up his piece uh, having to do with subculture of violence theory. Or the easier way would be to go through uh, the videos in my uh, YouTube page and look for my last interview with Dr. Tommy J. Curry, where he talks about that. So those concepts there have great importance you know, to, uh, you know, how black male political agenda is framed, right? Uh, Dr. Curry's approach, the text man not, but also the concept, intellectual historicism, empiricism, and subculture of violence theory, 
all of these things play a role, right? Subcultural violence means that we're that, that you're talking about racist scholarship that assumes black male, um, you know, uh, violence and and capacity of savagery, all these kind of things. Uh, it assumes that without qualification, and of course, the need to rely on data and uh, framing the origin of historical ideas. All of this has a strong influence in how we conceptualize this list. Okay. Um, Shout out to uh, BGS Idmore. One of the contributions that he made, conceptually speaking, to this list is referring to and framing, right, the Black gynocracy. Go back into BGS Idmore's videos here on YouTube and look into uh, the Black gynocracy, and he talks at length about the ways in which we actually do have a gynocracy, not necessarily a matriarchy. Matriarchy is, matriarchy is predicated on the mother, but a gynocracy right, which privileges and focuses on women, uh, females, really. So across age, the, the reference point, the, the deference being paid to women. And he historicizes the ways in which women in the Black community, uh, not only going back to slavery, but the various waves of its redefinition historically, uh, most particularly from the 1960s onward, you see the ways in which the state has played a significant role Early on plantations, but later on the state itself, particularly after World War II, plays a very important role in propping up a, a subset or uh, 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 what we might refer to as a cadre of women in the black community to serve in a position of stability, in a position of leadership. Even though we still chart black males as having failed the community, we don't talk about the existence of the gynocracy and how it functions. So shout out to BGS Ibmore, who's in the comment section who developed that very concept and has been one of the most ardent and outspoken about how it functions over the last number of years. Um, I'd say especially the last five, most in particular. So shout out to that. Now, also, and there's about three more, um, Green Gorilla, again, another member of, of YouTube content provider. You can find his channel here. Um, he is known also as the G with a PhD, and you can trust that he does have one. I know the brother Personally, he is, he's, he's, he's very skilled, brilliant cat. And one of the concepts he came up with very recently was the concept of racial hypergamy. And I've talked about that a couple of episodes ago, and we looked at that. So I just kind of wanted to let you know and, and go to his channel. Look up Green Gorilla and, and, and actually search for the episode where he talks about racial hypergamy and how that works. So I will leave you to do that with him so he can word it um, himself. All I will say here is that the very concept definitely impacts um, the black male political agenda, because it illustrates the relationship between black men in the state and black women in the state. And there's a different relationship. And because of the difference in that relationship, a black male political agenda will have to take that into account and actually begin to articulate the needs of men separate from any other demographic because our relationship with the state differs. Right. So there are other aspects to racial hypergamy, but the way it applies here is how it sets black men and women in different directions in terms of needs, experiences, quality of life, so on and so forth. Opportunities, you know, so uh, racial hypergamy becomes a very important concept in that. Right. Next up is Dr. Ronald Neal. You know, some of you may be familiar. I've had Dr. Ronald Neal on my show. He's also been on Gigi's show. Um, very powerful brother. And um one of the things he talks about, he's more so on Facebook, but he has started a YouTube account. He's just kind of growing it very slowly. But one of the things he talks about is black male independent thought. 
And that, of course, is an important part of the Black male political agenda to, to think independently, to think outside the box and not be pressured to think like everybody else simply because they want you to. And that's incredibly important right now because all of the push going on in politics is about voting, um, you know, for one party or another based on, you know, a, a wide variety of ideas and shaming tactics. But at the end of the day, asking the question, how do how does this discussion benefit black males? Right. How is what we're talking about beneficial to black males and how have how has each party uh, treated black males, not just in the last electoral period, but going back decades. Right. But thinking independently as black men and not just thinking about it in terms of the current moment. Right. So shout out to Dr. Ron O'Neill for that. And last and not least, um, some of the concepts I've developed. You know, I talk about uh, black masculinism. I'm the founder of the concept. And then basically you can go to my blog, um, which we'll look at in a moment, newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com. And you can see the formal definition of black masculinism, but basically placing black men at the center of analysis and asking the question, how does a various, how do these various phenomena impact black male direct, black males directly, right? So that's part of it. Um, but also the notion of flat blackness and flat maleness, right? Black, flat blackness means, you know, that now if, if you listen to others who talk about flat blackness, they're talking about it in terms of the, the reparations argument, the separation of lineage and race. And that's an important distinction. I talk about flat blackness a little differently. I talk about it on gender terms and I talk about the way that black men's issues and experiences are welcome when they're, the numbers of um, such like murder, uh, homicide, so on and so forth, incarceration, when those numbers uh, you know, kind of are useful politically, you know, for the black community, black men are welcome. But when you start to specify for gender, all of a sudden black men don't have a gender and we only focus on women, girls, and maybe LGBT. So that, that kind of flat blackness I'm talking about are the ways in which black men, particularly heterosexual black men are only welcome in the discussion when it benefits the group. But when we start to particularize for gender and sexuality, all of a sudden uh, heterosexual black men have no presence and, you know, the discussion shifts in a whole another direction. So there, there is no gender specificity, specificity when it comes to the experiences of heterosexual black males, but there are for other groups. And that's what I refer to as flat blackness. Flat maleness has to do with the idea that all men are the same. So often what you'll hear in a discussion, you know, particularly if there's a debate with, you know, feminists in question, is this whole issue of men, uh, uh, patriarchy, so on and so forth, privileges men have, and there's no qualification for how different groups of men are, black, white, Asian, Latino, it does it. Those qualifications somehow go away, and all men become the beneficiaries of male privilege, which I think is is just a very sloppy kind of idea. But if you actually look at the data regarding black men, you find it's a very different discussion. So flat maleness is the tendency to homogenize all men and not qualify for their distinct differences. And so whether you're talking about flat blackness or, or flat maleness, black men find themselves removed and excused from the conversation uh, when it's inconvenient for other people's political advancement, okay? Um, so these are the ideas that undergird the black male political agenda. And why don't we look at where the agenda is now? There are a couple of new ideas that have been submitted in the last week that I'm going to showcase. I have not added them yet to the web page that I'll show you for the blackmail political agenda, but I do want to introduce them to you so you be aware of what they are and they will be added shortly.
Okay. So that said, hold on. Okay. Let's see it went away. Okay. So let's do it this way. So we'll kind of cover the latest uh, developments in regard to the blackmail political agenda. So we'll get this off the screen here. Like I said, I had more planned here, but uh, my computer kept crashing, so I apologize. Um, but these are the new additions, right? This was sent in by one Tristan J. McKenzie, appreciate the uh, cash app. Um, and please don't forget to support the show, y'all. But this was sent in by Tristan J. Minimum age of criminal responsibility. Right. Minimum age of criminal responsibility in the U.S. raised to at least 18 years of age. Upon doing some quick research, I was alarmed to know that most states do not have a lower age limit to where a person can be charged, prosecuted, sentenced, etc. for a statutory offense. The states that do specify an age floor mostly range between seven to 10 years of age. I believe these sort of legal precedents contribute greatly to the criminalization of black boys. How many times have we heard stories about boys being tried as men, right? So again, uh, when it comes to this conversation of being able to be children, we, we find that black boys are often aren't able to. And we know there's data to suggest that boys are seen as older than they are, and of course, more threatening than they are, simply on the basis of how they look as early as five years old. Uh, nevertheless, how does that manifest politically? How does that manifest in terms of criminal uh, sentencing and uh, this notion of criminal responsibility. So I think this is an important point here to be examined in more detail, but just to kind of introduce that to you um, so you can kind of see where this list is going, right? So that, as I said, Tristan contributes here the notion of minimum age of criminal responsibility so that we can basically save black boys from being tried as men arbitrarily while other groups get to be tried uh, based on their actual age. Uh, so shout out to Tristan for that. Uh, 313 watching, please like, share, and subscribe. Uh, if you don't, uh, if you haven't yet uh, on, on uh, Facebook, I would hope that you are able to share. Uh, I think I left it open, so it should be public. Please share the video uh, and get it out. All right. So the next uh, addition to the blackmail political agenda is prohibiting jailing. All right. It's another contribution uh, by Tristan. Um, and I will develop the concepts a little more and do a little more research. Uh, as you know, most of the list has been fairly raw, and I've just added the bullet points in the order I've received them. But what I'm about to show you as far as the black male political agenda has been kind of refined a bit. Um, so I've changed the categories, but I haven't removed anything. I've just kind of or, you know, put it in a bit more order. But in past shows, I've just presented it to you in the chronological order that the ideas have been sent in. Uh, but this particular idea... Uh, was sent in, um, in in the order um, I've already presented. So here, blackmail uh, agenda, prohibiting jailing for failure to pay child support, right? And this goes back to what we saw earlier uh, with the rapper, uh, what was it, uh, uh, Rob? Anyway, um, so he talks about here, and he didn't go into great detail here, but I will flesh it out some more, but his point nevertheless has some some value, and it goes in the area that we were talking about earlier in terms of family court uh, at least on the blackmail political agenda, um, and deals with what happens uh, or what should happen 
in regard to black men uh, failing to pay child support and not being able to keep up, right? Uh, which actually ties to the next point, which was contributed. Thank you, Black Rob. Appreciate that. I, almost call, I think I call him Big Rob, but Black Rob. Um, so appreciate the support, Trouble, trouble Man. I'm getting old, my memory, y'all. It ain't working the way I, it used to. Anyway, this was contributed by our very own BGS Idmore, uh, sitting in his living room, watching his grandson play, um, which is always an honor uh, for me anyway, because his grandson is brilliant. Uh, and it, it, it comes from the bloodline. So it is what it is. Anyway, uh, he suggested to me in a very casual way, he said, you know, one of the things we need to talk about is an income floor. Right. And he said to qualify to make child support payments. You know, it, it, And he made the suggestion that uh, if they can't make payments, you know, put them into an apprenticeship. You know, if they can't find employment, they can't make payments, put them into an apprentice apprenticeship. And if they are not able to, uh, uh, you know, kind of succeed in that, right? Then jail them, but only if absolutely necessary. Now, I've, I've given this quote several times, but I wanted to put it here in print for you to see. This, this particular idea, as well as the last one, this whole question of an income floor, right? This whole question of prohibiting jailing. This is important <clears throat> because when we look at the data, right? What does it say? 20% of the people in the system shouldn't be in there because they're too poor, Doc, uh, says David J. Pate, an associate professor of social work at University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Those 10000 or even $20,000 earners per year, of course, the government, according to Pate, is owed $115 billion in child support, but 70% of that money is owed by Americans who make less than $10,000 per year, Right. Now, I know we like to talk about successful black men and we like to talk about six figures, but really um, pre-COVID, six figure black men are really one to three percent of the black community. Even if you're just over 100,000, you're really talking about a low percentage. We still don't know how devastating COVID has been to that. But we do know talking about one to three percent of the black community as representative of black men is highly problematic. More often than not, what we see here is the reality. Right. We know that according to families in the black community, 40 percent earn less than twenty one thousand a year by family before taxes. Right. Sixty percent earn less than thirty eight thousand a year. So the majority of black men that we're thinking about are not doing particularly well. And so when you look at data like this, having an income floor can be incredibly important. Now, nobody is saying at all that children should not be supported upon separation or divorce. Nobody's arguing that. But we are what we are suggesting is that family courts are not necessarily taking black men's situations into advisement um, in any kind of humane manner. And that needs to be reassessed uh, based on what black men are actually experiencing, right? Next up, we have child support and alimony assistance. This is contributed by Adam Ibmore, who has contributed a number of posts on here. Shout out to him, hope he is well. Uh, he gave the idea that uh, where it can be proven that a man's child support and alimony judgment requirements are causing a practical impact on his standard of living. So he would go back to Black Rob. The state government and muni municipality shall pay the cost in whole or in part, but no less than 66% of the total cost of the child support and alimony payments. Right. So interesting idea. So basically that there be some kind of support and alimony assistance 
program. But again, coupling that with BGS's idea of an apprenticeship program, right, is basically finding new ways to put black men to work, especially in an economy that has made it a point in the last few decades to exit black men from having uh, any kind of stable employment, right? So let us actually look at where the black male political agenda is at this point, okay? And for that, we will go, and I will go full screen on y'all because I want you to see it. Uh, Black Uru Strikes posed the question, thanks for the support, poses the question, do any of the stimulus plans include giving men a break on child support orders and debt? And yes, that is a rhetorical question. Well, uh, that is something we can work out and we can talk about. And remember, there's an after show to this where you can go into my, if you go into YouTube and you go into my, um, my channel, click on the community tab and I will be posting the link as soon as I can find it in face in YouTube, because YouTube has been, I don't know if it's YouTube that's been acting up lately or my computer, but um, I tried to put the link out there for the after show and it has been acting up. So um, I will try to make sure it's posted after the show. All right. We can talk about those things more directly. So this is my blog, right? This is, um, let me get out of here. Okay, so this is uh, this is the blog newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com, right? And you can find it there. There's more information about black masculinism, most popular articles, uh, of course, links to the Onyx report here, more information about me, so on and so forth. Um, right? But the political agenda you can find in detail um, and go through it yourself at your leisure. But just to kind of let you kind of see where the overview is and what it looks like at this point. Right. And again, this is something you can share. So please feel free to send the link. I think BGS has posted it in the comment section. But again, you can find it at newblackmasculinities.wordpress.com and scroll down a bit and check out the black male political agenda. So as it says, this list is still in development and is constantly evolving. I last updated it October 1st. Right. So I will be adding the uh, recent points to it that were brought in in the last few days. Um, But for now, this is where it is. And it starts with, number one, family court reform. Right. So from there, you have um, family courts treatment of black men has unfairly and drastically diminished black men and boys quality of life by privileging women as the primary caregivers. So obviously, the first point up is child custody. Right. Includes an automatic 50 50 child custody as long as fathers can prove. Um, what mothers are required to as far as a stable and safe living environment, income-based alimony slash child support judgment, um, it should be reassessed. So basically, in terms of child custody, men should have as much access to, access to it as women, provided that they meet the basic qualifications that women are asked to make. Second up, mandatory DNA testing at birth, right? Prior to signing the birth certificate, newborn children should be given a DNA test to assure the parentage of the father, thus avoiding men being unjustly responsible for supporting children under false pretenses, right? There are plenty of stories that we've heard about men who are tied to taking care of families that they did not produce and were not told were not there. So um, mandatory DNA testing, 
That is followed up by reconstituting at-fault divorce standards in alignment with gynocentric family court policies. No-fault divorce negatively impacted Black men by authorizing a massive shift in marital, marital culture that dramatically underdeveloped them economically. So again, if you make $10,000, $20,000 a year and you are responsible for alimony and child support, it's a very different situation than if you make a few million a year and you have to give up a certain number of millions to your partner, right? Drastically different situation. So at-fault divorce standards would uh, provide some accountability for arbitrary against arbitrary divorce and hopefully protect men in some fashion that will allow them to um, engage relationships without fear of being unjustly um, impoverished. Uh, next up, final financial abortion. So as we understand the law, it is a woman's right to choose whether or not she will carry a baby to term, put the child up for adoption, or abort it. Within the first six months after being informed about the pregnancy, men should have the right to financially disassociate themselves from the pregnancy. Right? So if she can choose whether or not to have the child, and she has over 30 different types of birth control, or 30 different forms, five major types, none of that including abortion, and men are still operating with the same birth control options they had in the 1950s, then men should at least have the right to have uh, to make a decision within the first six months of being after being informed, not the first six months of the pregnancy, the first six months after being informed, they should have the right to choose whether or not they want to participate. Um, next up, child support value system, instituting a system where goods, services and time spent with a child is calculated and valued at a dollar amount, any remaining deficit to be paid in cash. Right. Again, especially addressing those who are making 10 to 20,000 a year, time spent goods and services uh, can become a very necessary and useful way for uh, charting a father's participation. Right? And there are monetary aspects to goods, services and time spent that often goes ignored. Right to lifestyle. Post-divorce men should be entitled to the life they have been accustomed to in marriage, thus any judgment or consent determination uh, made must ensure that the husband can enjoy the same privilege and lifestyle enjoyed before or during the marriage, whichever costs more to maintain. All right? Uh, require fi uh, formal child support management reports. I know this is a big one, particularly with uh, single fathers uh, who are trying to uh, make child support payments. Right. The idea here being that ensure the child support payments are earmarked specifically for approved child-related expenses only. Payments used on non-child-related expenses must be accounted for by the custodial parent. That was a contributed. Uh, that was contributed by Xavier B. Shout out to him. All right. Shifting over to education, we have single-sex pedagogy and in institutions. This was given to us by BGS. Right. There's data to suggest that uh, same-sex education actually works, particularly with male teachers, as far as boys are concerned. So, as stated, as there is documentation to make that suggestion. Uh, that boys provide uh, perform better in all male environments, particularly under male teachers. It is proposed that boys be educated in environments that are all male, preferably black in relation to black boys, and rooted in a pedagogy that seeks to improve their performance by prioritizing their history, culture, and gender. That is followed up by preparatory reading slash STEM educational support. Talked about this recently, right? We looked at 10% uh, of, of city, state, and federally targeted resources for incarceration should be diverted to education, educational after-school programs for ADOS boys. Even funds earmarked for special education can be used to draft male college-level teaching assistance to create an all-male educational support structure. 
also provide tax breaks for pri uh, for private companies who may philanthropically donate materials, tech, etc. Lastly, cable and internet companies to be incentivized by federal and tax policy to provide free high-speed internet. You know, obviously we're talking about in terms of learning from home, right? So the importance of setting up preparatory reading slash STEM educational support. And that was because we reviewed a study that showed that by eighth grade, only 10% of black boys were reading, um, uh, were functionally literate, nationally speaking, right? So actually making a concerted effort to improve the quality of black boys' education, especially in light of the fact that in the last few years, we've come to understand that black girls are registered in, uh, in college higher than any other demographic. It would seem to me that based on that logic, uh, particularly in K through 12, it's the boys that actually need the help, right? Number three, a targeted homeless uh, homelessness program, right? Or multiple programs, especially post-incarceration, black men should be prioritized for housing as they are most often turned away despite having housing vouchers. Consequently, as Black America constituted half of America's homeless pre-COVID and remain disproportionately homeless, the majority of the homeless across race tend to be male. This makes Black males the most susceptible group to homelessness. Right? And anybody who has been to L.A. or Southern California and you've seen those tent cities can attest to just how many Black males find themselves and I've even find themselves living there. And I've even seen that here in Fresno. Targeted unemployment programs as black males experience unemployment at rates over 40 to 50 percent in over 34 major cities prior to covid. They need advocacy and policy that prioritizes their employment on both racial and gendered grounds. Right. Law enforcement, criminal sentencing reform. Black men should be arrested and sentenced to no greater degree than any other members of any other race who commit the same crimes. Pretty straightforward. Shouldn't have to be said, but obviously needs to be. Licensing law enforcement, right? Law enforcement professionals have a revocable license that can be permanently stripped to keep them out of the profession like lawyers and doctors. Police are uh, protected under the ruling of police protection from incriminating information or uh, keeping their job can save plenty of black men, right? So this was anonymously do donated, this idea here, but having a revocable license that would prevent uh, police who have uh, brutalized or uh, killed um, uh, black men arbitrarily, uh, having them not be able to work in their profession. All right. Um, hold on. Okay. Uh, let's see. All right. Proxy violence, right? Recognition of proxy violence as a criminal offense, punishable by no less than 50% of the primary offense prison time. One of the reasons for this one is because what we often see happening. Uh, is, you know, two men who may be fighting, who may be killing one another or something of that nature, one man killing another. But the instigator, the instigator in the scenario will often be a woman and she will not be necessarily held accountable as uh, her presence may not even be recognized. But proxy violence. And this is something that goes back historically as well. Right. If you look at plantations, you talk about the, uh, the relationship white women on plantations had with black men, as I think I pointed to earlier, proxy violence is what she used. She used the threat of a lynch mob, right, to shape his behavior, to control his behavior. Well, currently we still have that happening, but on a wide variety of uh, levels, wide variety of ways that it takes place. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, when women engage in this behavior, they're not held accountable. Meanwhile, the numbers 
uh, go up for men as victims of violence, victims of homicide, and yet, you know, nobody talks about the role uh, women may have played in that dynamic. Uh, end qualified immunity, right? Often negotiated into, into union contracts, qualified immunity is a legal principle that grants government officials, especially law enforcement, performing discretionary functions, immunity from civil suits unless the plaintiff shows that the official violated um, clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable person would have known. So in other words, qualified immunity uh, protects officials who will violate their position, uh, especially in regard to black men, uh, and from there uh, don't have to necessarily pay for it, right? Jury nullification. Um, this generally occurs when members of a criminal trial jury believe that a defendant is guilty, but choose to acquit the defendant anyway, because the jurors consider that the law itself is unjust, that the prosecutor has misapplied the law in the defendant's case, or that the potential punishment for breaking the law is too harsh. Some juries have also refused to convict due to their own prejudices in favor of the defendant. So yet again, uh, another way in which black men find themselves uh, on the wrong end of a judgment. Jury nullification disproportionately affects black men. Thus, 30% of the jury should be black and male in regard to a black male case. More specifically, when an ADOS, ADOS, ADOS man has, has to go before a jury, 30% of that jury should be his peers, right? False accusations. There should be a clear and more stringent punishments for filing false charges against black men. Knowing that black men are denigrated, stereotyped, and wrongfully convicted more than and to greater degrees than others, such accusations can have a more far-reaching and detrimental impact on black men's lives. Black men are the most exonerated group due to false accusations, according to the National Registry of, of Exonerations, Newkirk Center for Science and Society, University of California, Irvine. They state, African-Americans are only 13% of the American population, but a majority of the innocent defendants are wrongfully convicted of crimes and later exonerated. They constitute 47% of the 1,900 exonerations listed in the National Registry of Exoner Exonerations as of October 2016, and the great majority of more than 1,800 additional innocent defendants who were framed and convicted of crimes in 15 large-scale police scandals and later cleared in group exonerations. Right? Thus, whimsically um, dangerous charges with questionable slash unreliable evidence or no evidence at all should be harshly dealt with to dissuade others from repeating this act against an already vulnerable population, right? This is incredibly important, right? The arbitrary, you know, you know, kind of treatment of black men with false reporting, which can, it can vary. It can, it can have to do with how say white women, you know, as of late, we've seen this in the last couple of months. Uh, we've seen it for years, but especially in the last couple of months, we've seen video evidence of white women uh, suggesting that they are under threat by, you know, you know, black men. It could even be, you know, in the home, right, where girlfriends or wives, for that matter, may falsely accuse black men of crime simply because they can as another form of proxy threat, right, using the police to um, you know, determine their partner's uh, behavior. Uh, next up, intimate partner violence slash homicide policy reform, right? Abolishing the Duluth model, right? The Duluth model is the most common batterer intervention program used in the United States. Critics, critics argue that the method can be ineffective as it was developed without 
minority communities in mind and can fail to address root psychological or emotional causes of abuse, in addition to completely neglecting male victims and female perpetrators of abuse. More than ignoring male victims, the Duluth model proposed that men were de facto guilty of being the primary abusers of women whenever a woman experienced some form of intimate partner violence. It ignored women's greater capacity to initiate violence and or be aggressors of IPV. I've done past shows where I've highlighted by the data that women are more apt to start conflicts. They are more apt to engage in intimate partner violence and enact physical violence. They tend to use weapons more often than men, right? But we don't take that into account. So abolishing the Duluth model is the primary go-to method of assessing intimate partner violence and addressing it um, and actually being able to look at the situation for what it is. Uh, also, IPV carceral practices. Black men incarcerated for IPV require intimate partner violence, require a massive reevaluation re of their status in relation to their victimization at the hands of women. At rates of bidirectional abuse in the Black community suggest equal violence initiated by women to men and from men to women and the hypo sentencing of women for the same crimes as men by up to 63%. In other words, hypo sentencing, meaning that they are, they are, they are, char uh, they are charged less, right? So in other words, um, they have 63% less sentences for committing the same crimes as men, right? The underrepresentation of female aggressors suggests a massive bias in the sentencing that disproportionately targets and criminalizes men. Sexual assault rape acknowledgement includes legally recognizing the withholding of sex as a form of sexual abuse in marriage also requires that all rape allegations have traditional standards of adequate evidence prior to arrest and sentencing. And I should add, this should also include college campuses, right, who are not equipped in many instances to judge these situations, but lean on ideologies that privilege women and problematize men even before the situation is reviewed. Number seven, Targeted cancer campaigning, treatment and recognition. Black men are diagnosed with cancer at slightly less rates than white men and white women, but die from cancer more than white men, white women, and black women, especially in key states listed there. Scales for measuring black male cancer is three times larger per 100,000 when you're talking about black men and women. Now, understand, this is not being stated just to denigrate black women. The reason we do intra-racial gender comparisons is again, if we talk about cancer as a black issue, but black men are dying at three times the number, then this is more than a black issue. There is a black male component that needs to be acknowledged and it's often overlooked. Targeted small business support commensurate with our status in society and taking into account the lack of capital and inherited wealth, black male owned businesses should be targeted, particularly during COVID for support. I've talked about this before. There are measures in place that support, um, uh, uh, that offer grants and you know small business support during COVID on the basis of race, on the basis of gender, but also particularly earmarked for black women. You will find very few to know um, such support measures in place for black men. And this would be one of those things that would, well, all of this is related to the, the upcoming election, right? But at the very least, the conversation about small business support for black men needs to be on that agenda. And that's at the very least. We have other issues on the other side of the spectrum. Social security and life insurance family support, accrued social security and life insurance from deceased black males should be partly applied to children and grandchildren when applicable, right? Because sometimes you'll have a, a, a marital 
partner who will absorb uh, any benefits extended. And sometimes the children will not, or grandchildren for that matter, will have no access to it. Paternity leave, right? Parental leave for fathers on a federal level that applies nationally across the board as black men have been designated the most participatory fathers across race. In a recent study articulated by Josh Levs in his text, All In, How Our Work First Culture Fails Dads, Families and Businesses and How We Can Fix It Together, 2015, their lack of access to parental leave is unjust. Number 11, black male specific reparations for the transatlantic slave trade through 21st century hyper-incarceration. Right? Reparations should be should give black men specific focus due to one, the exclusivity of treatment from the onset of slavery, slavery to roughly 1800, a time period where black males were sought after to a greater degree than even black females. Now understand, <clears throat> excuse me, the Arab slave trade prioritized women in a very particular way. But the European slave trade prioritized men. So you really didn't get an influx of black women until about 1800. It's about 60 odd years prior to the formal end of chattel slavery. Now we acknowledge here the Onyx report that there are some, some to this day that are still enslaved essentially. So I don't argue that slavery ended in 1965 or 1865, excuse me. But I do argue that uh, there was a very particular treatment of black males that requires uh, analysis. Right. Number two, their prioritization in lynching and terrorist mistreatment. Right. The majority of lynchings that took place up to the mid 20th century on the basis of race were men. Right. Black men in particular. Number three, the designation that they only were allowed one fifth the vote when given the right, then terrorized not uh, to not even be able to use it. Right. The targeted campaign to be brutalized and killed by law enforcement and the targeted hyper incarceration policies from reconstruction convict leasing through the 1970s prison industrial complex to now, right? These are gender, race and gender specific practices. This goes back to Sedanius's statements about outgroup males. This is the treatment. It is policy-based. The subordinate male tar target hypothesis. It is not arbitrary. It is specifically targeted at black men. I see my numbers going down. We've gone down to 290. You know, I guess it's not exciting enough. I understand. Uh, part B, targeted wealth declines due to the Im impact of educational inequalities, neighborhood effects, workplace discrimination, parenting, access to credit, rates of incarceration, and many other factors. Research has shown that black males are more likely to experience race gaps and intergenerational mo mobility largely reflect the poor outcomes for black men. The report is another contribution to the growing literature showing that race gaps and the intergenerational persistence of poverty are in large part the result of poor outcomes for black men, specifically Chetty et al. Show that black men born to low income parents are much more likely to end up with low income individual, uh, low income individual income than black women, white women, and especially white men. Right. So they're more apt to be poor and they're more apt to fall into poverty, even if they're coming from well-to-do backgrounds. Black men are targeted and identified as the group most susceptible and um, vulnerable. Um, let me see here. So that said, reparations for black males should be commensurate with what they've experienced, both contemporarily and historically, right? All right, number 12. The United Nations, we charge the U.S. With, gen with genocide, with the genocide of the black male. 
According to the United Nations definition and much of what's listed here, black men have been subjugated, neglected, targeted, and killed to a great enough degree to warrant an investigation that covers both contemporary and historical mistreatment, right? So at the end of the day, what we're looking at here is a clear cut series of politics that prioritizes the experience and expression, say experiences of black men, right? And so when we talk about what exactly we're looking for in this election, we need to move past generic talking points. We need to move past, we just wanna be heard. We need to move past barbershop discussions. This is one of, you know, one of the things that candidates think we want. We just wanna sit down and be heard. No, we're talking about policy. We're talking about very specific actions that actually materially benefit the lives of black males. So I don't, ex I don't suggest that the, this list is exhaustive. I think right now, you know, it's up to 12 major points. I haven't added the three that I introduced tonight, but at the end of the day, I'm simply saying that we do have a list of concrete needs and issues that needs to be heard. Now, not everything on this list is gonna apply to every black man, but this is a list compiled by black men. Matter of fact, if you guys paid attention, even the concepts that undergird the black male political agenda are concepts developed by black men, right? And that's the kind of, that's what I think we need moving forward. Other people cannot speak for us any longer. Black men need to be heard. Black men need to articulate their issues and we don't need an interpreter. We don't need, any, we don't need anybody tone policing, telling us how we should speak, what we should talk about or what we should think, let alone what we should vote. And that gets us to the core of the show. Should black men vote? Well, here. I personally, to be honest with you, I don't care if you do or you don't. What I care about is that we actually start voting with a priority to our specific needs. Not generic needs on in terms of this flat blackness, not even generic needs in terms of this flat maleness, right? Just this idea that as men, we should vote for one party because they represent more. Or as black folk, we should vote for one party because they better represent us. Hell no. I'm actually suggesting that if you're not going to vote with the interest of your particular demographic, your needs as black males, I would rather you not, or at least vote down ballot if nothing else. But choosing one candidate over, over another based on what someone else is trying to shame us into doing, that's dead. Black men are more outspoken than I've seen in my lifetime, and I was born to a Black Panther but I've not seen black males articulate their own needs as black males until the last few years. And I hope that we're able to build on that because what I wanna see moving forward is more of that. These issues that we're bringing up here, these things that I, I just read to you in the black male political agenda, these are things that most black men at least have some relationship with. We know somebody, if we're not dealing with it ourselves, that have dealt with these issues. But how often have you seen this articulated as a series of issues that require, you know, political redress? When have you seen it put into a concerted listed agenda or set of demands for that matter? When have you seen it put forth to a party and suggested that if you do not address the needs listed here, you will more than likely not get our vote? Not just as black folk, 
but it's black men. When have you seen that? We vote Democrat to the second highest level, right? More than any other group. The only, the only group that votes Democrat more than us are black women. Yet the Democrat party has nothing to say to black men in any significant way. Nothing. And no, I don't support, I, I don't believe that just because that's the case with Democrats, the Republicans are, are better. I don't. But what I will say is I have always been, and I didn't have the term, but um, I haven't been, I, I've always been fairly pragmatic when it comes to this. And I'm willing to be here. I remember even back in the 1980s, Farrakhan told us that we needed to stop investing in one party and demand that the parties compete for our votes by meeting our needs. I didn't know that was a form of pragmatism back then, but I'm still a pragmatist to this day. And personally, based on an agenda that we're putting together, that's what I'm voting for. I'm not voting for a party. I'm not voting for a personality. We've been duped like that before. I'm voting for a particular set of needs and, and issues. And, and to what extent, whichever candidate is on the docket can meet those needs. And the more they ignore it, the less apt I am to vote for them. So I'm not going to tell you what to vote for or whether or not to vote. I will simply implore you to consider using your vote strictly on the basis of how well the candidate meets your needs. And by needs, I'm proposing that the black male political agenda be something you use to figure out what your needs are. See, I want I want black men to engage in these political debates with something more than just platitudes. I want you to be able to list out unblinkingly. I want you to list out with confidence. These are the issues that need to be addressed. And look people straight in the eye. Deal with it. Because you've not heard anything on this list coming from any major party. You've not heard anything on this list coming from the black community. Because again, black males, their issues, if they don't align with what's considered the black community, they're not addressed. This is why to this day, most people don't believe black males have a set of interests outside of what's been deemed black issues. But we do. And I can tell you, not all of these apply to me. This is not a personal thing. I, you know, I didn't have to go to family court. I'm a widower. I don't have a grudge, you know, to get back at my my ex because she took my money. It's not personal. I asked black men to submit the points that were relevant to them. And they did. And then black men contributed to the discussion after I presented those points. And I'll tell you, I heard far more agreement than not. There's not even a whole lot of debate about the finer points. I think for the most part, <clears throat> it's been a challenge for black males to even see themselves as a distinct group that has its own political needs. We've really not seen it in our lifetime. And that said, it's important that we start to be able to because it's a, it's, it's a very pregnant political moment and it requires a very clear cut and articulatable set of needs, issues, and we need to be able to speak it with authority. So I, I implore you, whether you are conservative, whether you are liberal, whether you are revolutionary, whether you are um, completely, whether you have completely abstained from the political process, I implore you to consider using this list 
and challenge people in political dialogues about meeting the needs of black men. Because if our deaths can be used as other people's political footballs, then you damn sure should know that we should be able to be able to, we should be able to be heard about the things that affect us directly. So that said, you know, we need to we need to create a new agenda as far as uh, what we experience. And much of the time I haven't heard it. And it's funny, even from black male political pundits who are, are very astute, who are very outspoken, who, you know, can talk to you at length about politics and they, you know, they can go into the weeds on all kinds of issues. It's funny to me how few of them can actually speak for what black men actually need. It's hilarious to me. We actually, we can account for what other people need more than us. And we're okay with that. We consider that being politically astute. But if you ask any of them, what is it that black men, men need? It's armchair responses. But none of them have actually asked black men what they need. And that's one of the things that needs to change. So I submit this list. I suggest you use it. If you have other ideas, I implore you to send them to me. And I will add them to the list. Right. So y'all know how I like to do. Uh, I'm going to close out here and uh, look to my community tab. I'll give you an update on uh, where things are as far as that's concerned. Uh, for the after show, I'm having some technical issues, so hopefully we'll be able to go on tonight. Uh, shout out to Kabir for the cash app. Appreciate that. Shout out to Derek Holmes. Appreciate that support. Uh, please make sure you contribute to the show. Become a member. Darius Harper, thank you for that, for the uh, support. Become a member of the show. But as y'all know, I like to close, right? I'm here to tell you, brothers, we are not criminals by birth, perennial rapists, incapable intellects, man children, sperm donors, child support wellsprings, success objects, walking phalluses, ATM machines, lottery tickets, brainless henchmen, valueless assassins, pro bono mercenaries, under unpaid bodyguards, interchangeable stepfathers, child discipline proxies, unpaid repairmen, workhorses, emotional tampons, or any other socially accepted dehumanizing stereotype. We are thinkers, inventors, innovators, leaders, fathers, warriors, and men. Embrace your humanity, know your worth, and extend your time, attention, and resources only to those who genuinely respect you. And remember, your worth is not defined by meeting other people's narcissistic, selfish, and unrealistic needs. You define your worth. Peace.